Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, artists, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we usually have on the front lines. But just this time, we happen to have microphones in our faces, and you happen to be listening in. And this month, we are so excited to welcome three artists to our to this episode. We have Amina Brown-Owen, who is a spoken word artist based in Atlanta. Amina Brown, hello and thank Thank you for coming on this podcast. Hey, Lisa. It is so, so great to have you here. I cannot wait to engage this conversation with you. And for y'all who don't know, I met Amina while we were on the road with the Voices Project, and we've also run into each other at the Justice Conference, a few Justice Conferences. And um, Homegirl, oh my God, she is a spoken word artist that is, I mean, really on an international level now, people... She blesses spaces wherever she goes. So, Amina, thank you again for being on the show. Um, While Trina Middleton is a performance artist and activist, and she's based. Well, Trina, where are you based? I can I always get it wrong, so I'm going to ask you to say it. Oh, I always say I'm a daughter of diaspora, so I'm anywhere in the world. That's why I always get it wrong. So anywhere in the world. Okay, well, that's well, that is what I'm talking about. But while Trina, she my experience of Waltrina as a performance artist and a spoken word artist is that, oh, my goodness, Waltrina digs from that deep, deep place. And she absolutely blessed a conference that I put together, a summit that I put together uh, with, our, of course, our awesome, amazing team at Sojourners a few years ago. And wow, I mean, literally. Like the whole thing could have just packed up and gone after she was on. And so while Trina, I want to thank you for uh, for the way that you bless the world, not only through your art, but also through your activism. You are one who creates bridges and educates and educates through your entire self. So I want to thank you for all that you do. And Catherine Sherman, Catherine Sherman. Now, the funny thing is, right, so Catherine Sherman and I have been knowing each other since 1980. 89. Yes, we just dated ourselves, children. <laughs> We're old friends. We are dear old friends. And but it's funny because we've both been on a very similar journey, you know, coming out of conservative evangelicalism into I think a deeper faith, a really profound faith. And Catherine is a quilter, y'all. So what she does is she actually takes the pieces, pieces of fabric from history and from the present, and she creates meaning by etching them together, sewing them together into one larger narrative that you can see. It's it's absolutely beautiful. And um, she just recently gave me a quilt that I think she's going to talk about later. And it, when she explained this quilt to me, I literally cried. I literally cried. So I'm hoping she explains it here because I think that, you know, there might be a tear or two jerked in in the next hour here. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. For inviting me. Absolutely. So I have asked these three prophetic artists to join us on Freedom Road Podcast to help us to consider the prophetic power of art. 
Now, we'd love to hear what you think about this topic as well. So just go ahead and tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We love the back and forth. So just keep it coming, okay? So most people don't know that I actually, I'm an artist. I mean, I'm really not playing. At heart, I'm an artist. In fact, when I was working at Sojourners, I think one of the most beautiful moments I ever had there, I was talking with Jim Wallace and I was his director of mobilizing at the time. And I think I was transitioning into another like uh, broader position. And he said to me something that really struck. He said, Lisa, now that I've seen what you do, because I did a theater piece for them, um, now that I've seen what you do, I, I understand you're an artist. And now that I understand you're an artist, I get you. <laughs> I didn't even realize I wasn't being gotten before. <laughs> but but it is true. Like there, I think that artists are people who kind of see the world at a tilt and a depth that others don't see it. And it's our job to kind of communicate what we see, what we experience, what we feel to the world. And so at this time, when I wrote this piece, it's, this piece is called Creature Created. I was transitioning out of a time when I really was suffering from self-hate. I think I didn't understand who I was. And so I was wishing I was somebody else who was more normal. And so, um, so I want to share this with you. It's called Creature Created. I ride the waves of life, bouncing and behaving and having fun and having fun. I dive in and soak in truth. I am creature created free. I am that I am my creator's image. I am held tight. I am loved big. I am rocking and a rolling and a grooving and a swaying to the music of his love for me. For me, I can hardly believe it. For me. But oh, sometimes that undertow gets me. That secretive sly fox of a dragon drags my baskin feet miles down the beach. Each mile he beckons me. Believe lies. Believe the lies. Believe lies. And strangely, I'm drawn up, caught up, snared up. Pulled up, believing his foul puffs, each breath searing the hairs in my nose. You're not wanted. I know the real you. Mile by mile, farther away from home and swimming and truth and freedom. Father, he pulls me snorting. The real you ain't nothing special. You are a lie. Now, just then, when he say, you are a lie, the wind comes and picks me up and totes me back. And the whole way home, the wind be whispering, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. See the sand there? My thoughts of you outnumber them. I thought up your pear shape. I thought up your freckled face. I thought up your four kinds of hair on your head. Yep, I thought up even that. I gave you eyes that see things. You a seer. I made that. Don't steal my glory by putting down those eyes. Those eyes, they see the world at a tilt and a depth. 
And the moment they work right, what they see rocks you. And as you being rocked, my eyes are fixed on you. Those moments when the clouds of your soul part and open up and you see what I see. Those moments, you are not a lie. You, you are not a lie. I'm home now, swimming in truth. I am creature, created, beloved. Free of the lies. Ah. So, we are talking art today. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my gosh, thank you. Oh, I love the ladies. Thank you so much. <laughs> so we're talking art today. I want to know from three amazing world-class artists. I want to know, when were you bit with the artist bug? I, I've been involved in artistry thanks to my mom and a cousin. Um, they wanted to enter me in a Sarah and Richard Allen contest. And um, yes, when I was a little girl, I think I was second or third grade and um, I needed a talent. And they taught me Langston Hughes, the Negro mother. And I didn't realize just how powerful the words that I was speaking, like how powerful they were and the message and the narrative it was telling. But I know I really love the the performative arts of it, and I love dressing up in character, and I also love the way the adults were falling out to see this little girl um, take on this character of this elderly woman um, telling this story, and I carried that poem with me everywhere I went, um, and, and it's it's been somehow inherent a part of my artistry. I realized that the joy that I found in performing arts, uh, spoken word, that it was something that um, was exciting and cross generations. And um, I I fell in love with it. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing. How about, how about others of you? My story is similar to yours, Waltrina. Yeah. My mom was a, she was a big advocate of reading And I just, I read a lot of amazing poets and novelists as a kid. So I I think that definitely had an impact on me. But I don't know that I realized it at the time. But now I think my first moment was my mom was a single mama and I was a latchkey kid. And so, you know, she would like threaten me within inches of my life about what was going to happen. You know, (laughs) you're going to take this key. You're going to go home. Nobody better be in my house, you know, while I'm not there. You're going to watch TV for 30 minutes. You're going to eat a snack. You're going to do your homework. By that time, you know, I'll be home. So, of course, we had all these VHS tapes, right? And my mom 
probably didn't think about this, but she had recorded Eddie Murphy's Delirious <laughs> onto a VHS tape. And I definitely spent a few weeks as an eight-year-old watching that for my 30 minutes when I got home. An eight-year-old watching Eddie Murphy? That's kind of scary, girl. Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm I'm sure some of it, I just, I didn't understand what he was talking about. But I look back on that now, and that was a moment for me of like, I want to stand at a microphone and do that. Like, I think that was the beginning of it. So shout out to my mom. And for watching Eddie Murphy way too young. That is so. <laughs> that is so great. How about you, share? I'm Catherine. I, you know, I I trace it back to falling in love with color, which goes right back to playing with crayons. Oh like the, wow! The box of crayons, and I I really love school, and so I I think I I like school because I could turn anything into a creative project. I think I'm actually a little bit dyslexic, but I, I managed to, I've, I've always sort of managed to turn things into art and survive that way. Wow. Yeah. And I've just, I've loved fabric. I made a, I made crazy things. I, I remember my mom had fabric and I wanted to play with it, but I couldn't sewing machine. So I, I made a pillow with staples and cotton balls and, you know, maybe I cut something out of one of my outfits that I wasn't supposed to. So. Oh, <laughs> I was did you get in trouble? Did, did you get in trouble? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's a great mom. That's a great mom. She knew she had an artist later or early rather later. Yes. I, I have, I have a good mom. <laughs> so how about you guys? Like one of the things for me, when I, when I started realizing that I was an artist, one of the things that I knew was happening for me was that I was actually going deep into my art in order to do some deep healing, even within myself. Like I was writing poetry and I was, in fact, in fact, my first scene that I ever wrote for a play, and I was a playwright before I was even a spoken word person artist, the first scene I ever wrote for a play was in the middle of journaling. I was so mad at somebody that I I got an idea for a scene between, it was me and me telling him off. <laughs> it was like so hilarious. So I, I was totally journaling to the Lord. I was like, okay, Jesus, wait, hold on. I got an idea for a scene. And I wrote the scene, you know? So for you, did did your art come out of a personal, like, just a way to kind of ex- almost an expression of prayer? <laughs> That's okay. If it did it, I might just be alone here. That's okay. Okay. No, I don't what think you're alone though, that? because no, no, it's okay. a lot of a lot of uh, poets and just artists in general that I know enter sort of the creative space initially for catharsis you know yeah that's so in in my artistic community i feel like i am the lone person like oh i don't think that's what it is that led me to the page it i definitely was a shy child and was more withdrawn so i think it it was more nice to have a place to express myself Mm -hmm. but i don't i think it actually took me until i was in my 20s to where i was able to express my emotion in my writing I think I'm more of a talker than a writer, even though it is writing that led me to performance. So if I have emotions, I typically don't think to go and write. I want to talk them out, you know? So I think, I think it really is the love of words and the love of wordplay Mm -hmm. and hip hop and all those things that really led me to being interested in writing more than it was my own internal process. 
And when did it first occur to you, any of you or all of you, that your talent and your faith had anything to do with each other? I I don't think that in the beginning that I saw it, even though my first performance was for the denominational contest, I I didn't make this connection. It was just a cool talent to have Mm -hmm. for this contest. But I think that as I got older and I started to witness the power of lament through spoken word Ah. and that, um, that lamentation and poetry and voice, because I sing as well, that especially um, through jazz and the blues, I discovered that, hey, there's something powerful here to be able to honor your lament. Because too often, as as a person of faith, I'm told that you shouldn't lament. But Mm -hmm. I've learned that lamentations obviously um, is a critical component of faith. Yeah. Um, and as much as celebration is, so is lamentation. And so I started to use it as a tool of lamentation and as a vehicle for healing as well. But that came later. It wasn't my first instinct. And I think that um, maybe the seeds were planted early on so that it was something that I could return to. Mm. Wow. I mean, I think, I mean, I totally understand. I'm seeing Amina nodding her head as well. Is that right? That's right for you as well, Amina? Yeah, I I just I I resonate I resonate with with a lot of what Watrina was saying because I I grew up in a church that was very art centric. So I became a Christian at 12 years old, but then immediately was in a church environment where we could, I mean this was the 90s, so we could like have a step team, <laughs> you know, and have <laughs> our drama team at church and rap at church and you know all those things so I I, it was interesting that all of that happened sort of at a similar time but I think that communicated to me there is a way that this art you know and and for some cases for us growing up as kids in the 90s this art that we're seeing on TRL and BET and in other places can also have a place here in our church setting in our faith context and that was so powerful for me to realize that 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 was welcome. I, I look back at our church now and think I'm really glad that our pastors welcomed that because there were many places we could have done our art and they welcomed us to do it inside the church. It's pretty amazing, actually, because it, it sounds like your church in many ways kind of planted a garden for artists to grow, you know, like really, really set set the environment to help you as an artist become who you were created to be. Catherine, I'm really curious for about you, like, because I know that you um you were in you were in Texas and when I met you you were actually weren't you a cinema cinematography major or you were doing something in cinema? Yeah, my degree is in radio, television, and film. That's it. Yep, but I'm I am really a people person, and so when I moved to New York, I worked with you at the Lamps Theater, uh-huh. and then I ended up working in human resources. But I I'm just I'm nodding my head thinking about just the idea of lament and how our, our emotions can really, they can power our art. There's the, the feelings of the art and then the expression of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say for me, I, I resonate with, was it Trina or Amina saying that church was a great, I mean, both of you church, both. church always was a place where we could be creative. Wow. Um, that I could, 
I would, that creativity would get channeled into different projects throughout the church year. Mm. And I would say as a quilter, it was much later. It was later. It was probably in my forties when I started really taking my quilting seriously Mm. and lamentation that actually sort of drove me to both the expression and the production of quilting at the same time. Not, it, it became not just a visual picture I was making, but I was actually tearing fabric and lamenting. So that act of tearing the fabric as part of the making of the quilts became, that was, that was just a breakthrough. And you can grieve and construct at the same time. Wow, thank you so much for that. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you the stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. And now we have a performance by Amina Brown. I first noticed you when I was about three. My friend's mom carved and twisted you into rows, punctuated with tinfoil and beads. That was the first time I learned you could swing. I loved you then. Until Grandma tried to get me pretty for church, and you would not cooperate, so we greased you up. Branded you with a hot iron comb, you fought and hissed, and finally submitted. You laid down. You let us have our way with you. Decided to bend and curl as we instructed you, and I felt sorry for you. And maybe you felt sorry for me, too. For tips of ears and back of neck sacrificed. For innocent hairs singed. For pain tolerance learned. For curling iron forehead scars. For holding down my ear for the fear that I'd be burned. School started. And I began to resent you. See, back then, high side ponytails were in. I wanted you to behave the same as the strands of Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. I realized I was neither brunette nor blonde, that you had no intentions of going along with this. I was angry with you, forced you against your will, pinning you down, holding you tight, tying you up until it hurt both of us, and I cried because I was pretty sure I hated you. It seemed you were never what I wanted you to be. You would not lay, only stand. You would not blow in the wind, only lean against it. So I decided to get you fixed. For 20 years, I subjected you to concoctions that I hoped would teach you not to be yourself, to convince you for the rest of my life to just be like someone else. I hoped it would teach you 
that to be yourself isn't okay, isn't enough to remind you there is a norm and you need to conform, so you did, till I noticed you, trying to push past who I'd made you into, and for the first time in a long time, I remembered you were beautiful realized I had wronged you, that maybe it was time to let you be, so I cut you loose, I let you grow, I learned your frequency, you didn't want to be branded, burned, subjected, you just wanted to be free. You wanted to teach me how to love, because learning to love my curls would help me to love my bare face, brown skin, and round curves, would help me to heal the kind of hurt a grown woman carries from being a little black girl loving you, is teaching me to love that little girl, and the grown woman she grew up to be, I am watching you grow, and as you grow, I do too, you remind me every day that we are both beautiful. speaking to the world's deepest needs. Uh, Amina, Amina's <laughs> eyes are bugging over here. <laughs> She's like, like uh, my, is... my art is speaking to the world's deepest needs? What are you talking about? <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, Lord, oh. that's a very deep No, but, but it's true, though. Amina, <laughs> I have seen your Don't You Play Like That because I've seen your stuff. And, I mean, especially that one that you did, it was a video um, spoken word piece. It was the first video that I saw you do. You probably did others, but where you were talking about your hair. Hello. And you were talking about, you know, how how you like fell in love with your hair, but your relationship with your hair. That was powerful. I look, I don't even know, maybe I saw it a year ago, maybe two years ago. I still remember that, right? Because it hit something in me. So don't play, don't play. So when did you have a sense? When did you have a sense that it was hitting? Let's just put it that way, that it was hitting. Like it was it was yeah. starting to hit the wall and stick. You know? I I think that's for me, and I'm I'm interested just to hear Catherine and Waltrina's perspectives also, as well as yours, Lisa. I think to me, the things that I am writing that I might think this is gonna do it. People uh, are gonna yeah. feel the things. <laughs> they never true. feel the things when I think that's gonna happen. That's true. But most times, if people are impacted by anything that I've written or performed. It's when I have been more present inside of it myself, whether that was my having to process my own, you know, feelings of grief that I've written about, or even when they were funny things, you know, things I experienced growing up and being flat chested and wanting really bad to have a certain size of breasts or whatever mm, that was, yeah. you know, the times that I decided to really be myself in my art and really sit in my own humanity, I have found have been the times that other people in the audience or who watch those things, you know, on a video or hear them on audio, feel like they identify with them. So I feel like it helps me as an artist to distance myself from, you know, what will the audience feel about this? And to more so be focused on what is it this in my soul to say? 
what's the best way I can say it? How can I make it so that in the room, we're all really centering on the experiences we have in common? And in some ways, on experiences that you may have that are totally different from me, but resonate with me in whatever my experiences have been too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about for you, Catherine? I so, I so get that. And it's, it's such a letting go of yourself, mm. but then being incredibly vulnerable at the same time. And I, I feel like it's such a sweet spot of finding that, finding that idea that you, you hope everybody will be able to get, you hope will be something that can make sense. And sort of the, the phrase I think about is individual expression of a shared geometry. Ooh. Because I think, I think there are these shared geometries that are common to all people, but wow. there are very individual expressions. So and the quilter. So that's really interesting <laughs> that, no, really for real, that, that you're thinking in terms of geometry, a shared geometry. Can you kind of break that down for us a little bit? What do you mean by that? Well, shared geometry. So in quilting, there are, there are a lot of patterns, but if you look at the quilting patterns, there's, there's nine patch. There's, most of them can be broken down to circles and squares and straight lines. Mm-hmm. And really, people have different names for them, but you can find most of these patterns or versions of them in every culture across time. Wow. Um, but they're, they show up a little bit differently. They all have their, their own nuances, and, and they're beautiful. But they, they go way beyond fabric. They go all the way back to stone paths, you know, in, in ancient Rome, and I haven't done extensive research, but it would be amazing to talk to archaeologists who actually could could verify these these patterns that are you know across the continents. Wow. There's so much that we have in common. So that's pretty but cool. Yeah, but every you know it it's so important for each for the artist to be able to say it in their own voice. Yeah. So. But tapping into those shared geometries, I really love that. How about how about you, Altrina? Um, there are a couple of different things, but I would say at first it was being able to embrace my cultural heritage um, as a daughter of the Sea Islands. Mm-hmm. I grew up um, with um, a lot of critical and negative feedback, I guess, if you will, from the school administration about us Gullah folks calling us Geechee and basically saying that we were not educated people. And learning about the richness of the Gullah community and being able to create spoken word that speaks to my heritage and identity, I think that was probably one of the most powerful, um, um, and, and that's why your poem at the very beginning resonated so well with me because it was a a process of learning to love not just myself, but my people, my culture, my roots. And I think that's why I am so committed to helping others to fall in love with themselves um, as well. But also when I was in college is when the first time I spoke openly about sexual violence Mm. and being a survivor. And I started to write to talk about my own personal location as a survivor and the liberation that I felt in 
being able to tell my own story and to also take ownership of my own process, not solely of healing, but of forgiveness, if that was a part of it, and also to empower others to define for themselves what forgiveness and what healing could look like. I felt strong. I felt powerful. I felt brave. And I also found a connection, just to kind of speak with what Catherine said, to be interconnected with others. Um, because so many people approached me afterwards and said, thank you for giving voice to a suffering that I myself experienced, but was ashamed to share. Mm, wow. So, I mean, what I hear there is that, I mean, art actually gives voice. It's one of the functions of art is is to release voice into the world to be heard, especially for those whose voices, for whom their their voices have been covered up or muffled or silenced. Wow. And it's a powerful voice when it comes yeah, out too, I, right? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I think, no, I was just agreeing with you, um, especially when we think of just looking at not just faith in a church and a building, faith on the streets and being able to see a, a powerful manifestation of of giving voice to pain and solidarity and sharing that narrative, that common thread, that common narrative. Um, I think it helps to also reveal another way of how we can experience our faith. So art, I don't know. I mean, for me, is this art a reflection of our faith or is our faith a reflection of the art or it's interesting how it feeds on to one another, feeds each other, if, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. You know, there was this, um, I was a part of a group um, back in 92, 93, 94. We started at a, a youth theater in the heart of Los Angeles after the L.A. civil uprising. And it was pretty incredible, actually, because what happened is, you know, once all these neighborhoods burned down, Hollywood really began to look towards towards the city that they lived in and realize, oh, there are other people there who are suffering. And so a bunch of folks who were in TV shows that, you know, we all knew and loved back in the 90s and and 80s, they all started to come and figure out, like, how can we help? And one of the ways that they helped was to start this youth theater. Um, we, We all kind of put it all together. And I will never forget the power of those trained artists actually working in partnership with young people from our neighborhood, the Rampart Division. If you ever saw the movie Training Day, it was that neighborhood, <laughs> um, you know, and South Central. And although it, now it's called South L.A., but it was it was the process of mentoring these young people into how to craft a story and tell their story in creative ways. And some of their stories would make you cry and others would make you howl with laughter. <laughs> They're so funny, you know, and so incredibly creative. But talk about giving voice, voice to, to those whose voices have been muffled. Art has that kind of transformative power. So I want to ask you another question. How important is training? Because I mean, some people just, you know, like they think, oh, training isn't that important. And other people are like, oh, you must, you know, go and get your master's degree or your doctorate, you know, like in, in, in quilting. I mean, I don't, I don't know. So how important is training to be a great artist? I, well, okay. We're probably going to agree with each other. Mm -hmm. I think training is incredibly important, but I think it can come in different forms. And well, that's good. different people, people can benefit. It, it's, it's discipline that's so important. Mm. The discipline to keep growing as an artist, 
to keep learning, to keep stretching yourself and to keep working. And sometimes that can mean the masters. Sometimes that just means doing the work and doing the work and doing the work and stretching yourself. Wow. That's really good. Uh, Amina, I think I see you wanting to talk. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree with Catherine. I, I was, I was sort of like going back and forth. Like, you know, obviously whenever I talk to young people, I'm always encouraging them, you know, to not just step up to the stage unprepared, you know, but, but I think to Catherine's point, that preparation can look like a lot of different things. You know, some of it is being well-read. Some of it is being around older people and listening to the stories that they tell you, you know, Mm -hmm. some of it can be that sort of traditional um, academic training. And sometimes it's, you know, like for me, I don't do slam poetry anymore, but slam poetry was a huge training ground for me. And there was no degree involved in that. It yeah. was volunteering yourself to go there and perform and be heckled or not be scored well or whatever, oh you know. Gosh. So I, I think there should be a willingness to do the training that's right for your discipline Good. that you do. But I think it's also important to not sort of downplay what could be our great cultural training, what could be great training that's not what people view in a Western sort of academic way. I, I, I do remember graduating from college and at that time, spoken word was not a thing that academia even respected. You know, yeah. I mean, now spoken word poets can go very easily and get MFAs and go to different programs, become mm-hmm. professors and do those things. But you know, in the era of deaf poetry jam, I mean, a lot of professors are like, if you don't have sestinas, if you don't have haikus and sonnets, we don't care about your poetry. Mm. And there was a lot of poetry happening that uh, academia missed out on for a long time because of that. So I think it's important to not downplay what might be unconventional training, Mm -hmm. but that every artist needs that training too. I agree. Um, I think training is definitely critical, but I definitely also lean towards what Amina said in terms of understanding the cultural um, lessons and training um, that one can have. One of my idols is Sojourner Truth. Mm. And Sojourner Truth, many people know her as an orator, but she was also a poet. Oh, wow. She traveled preaching doing poetry and using storytelling as a method of being able to identify and relate with um, those that she was trying to reach. And those were people who couldn't read or write and wanted to educate them in a language that spoke directly to their location. Mm -hmm. And the spoken word and storytelling was that tool that allowed her to do so. And so Mm -hmm. her lived experience as a person who liberated herself from the plantation um, and who boldly spoke out on racial and um, gender um, justice allowed her to be able to express herself in one arena where um, spoken word was her entry point. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of times we underestimate the gift and the power of those lessons that we inherit through that cultural narrative. And I think that while the training is important for me, as I shared, education was something that was really critical in my formation and being able to understand the beauty of my heritage, but the vernacular, the way that I express myself, all of those things was given to me from my Gullah culture. And that's something Mm. that I could never receive in a classroom. 
Wow. When I think about like the, what I learned when I was in, you know, I, I got my undergrad in theater arts and I got my master's in playwriting. And so I'm actually, obviously I'm a stickler for training. I want, I think that artists really need to be trained, but I think that there is something though, that you can't train, right? There's the, you have to actually live. You have to actually have life experience to talk about. You have to, or at least learn, take in others' life experience and have a point of view about it that that is forged in fire. Like your your point of view is really where your art comes from. And I remember when I was young and I was in class and I would always be, <laughs> I think about this now and I'm like, oh my gosh, I would so didn't get it. But I would always be in class and always wanting the teacher to tell me I was I was doing it right. Right. So it was all about doing it right. But now when I think about like art is never about doing it right. Art is about doing it truthfully. Like that's really what it's it's about making the truth visible, making the truth tangible um, and able to be grasped. So, you know, technique, you know, technique is necessary. But technique only goes as far as you are connected in with the truth. So for me, that's actually, I'm realizing I kind of answered my own question in terms of the faith question. That's how art and faith connect for me, is that art is a way that um, a very power, it's actually probably the most powerful way that we have to make truth visible. More powerful than any sermon, more powerful than any blog or article or even a book, a whole book. You can, you can do more. You can move people to action and give them deeper understanding of a thing through art than you can through 20,000 words. And the honesty of it all. I yes. think um, just to kind of look at the whole education piece, I mean, sure, education is fine as long as you're being honest. Because if you're not being authentic in what you're presenting, you know, I could care less about what you're presenting. Um, I, I think right. that was one of, one of the beautiful things about art as a form of protest and, and resistance, um, that it comes from out of a very raw, authentic place that may be even unexpected. Maybe the person didn't even realize that they were an artist and that they had that gift to convey. And so I think that as long as we're leaving space for some level of authenticity, I welcome mer mer merging the education, no training background um, with the raw gift talents of what others have to share. So let me just along with that, Waltrina, what do you think of not just you, but everybody, what do you think of the term Christian art? <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't see it, but all, Amina's eyes literally rolled back in her head and her head followed. <laughs> I love you, Amina. <laughs> that was so, so funny. Tired. Go Every on, girl. Every time I hear that phrase, I get tired. <laughs> uh, I, think, uh, I think, unfortunately, that phrasing has flattened yes. okay. a lot of the work of artists who are Christians mm -hmm. and not oh. that there should be any shame in us, you know, and those of us who are artists wanting to be Christian artists. But I think uh, because of the way in some circles, Christian art, you know, air quotes has been flattened to be this sort of sanitized version yes. of yes. art. 
in the same way that's happened to Christian radio. You know, our, our Christian radio stations have these phrasings like a safe for the whole family, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I'm not sure the Bible's safe for the whole family. Hello. I mean, the Bible itself wow. has a lot of like violence and really rated R. That is deep. That's true. That go on in it. But I think we've gotten this idea somewhere in our Americanness and how that interweaved its way into some things that in order for art to be Christian, it has to be sanitized. It has to not address certain things or it has to not use certain types of language. So for me, I shy away from that term Mm -hmm. as far as uh, being Christian artist, because I always want people to know sometimes you're saying that term back to me. And what you mean is, is this something I could put on and listen to in the car with my five-year-old? Mm. And you might not be able to listen to it with your five-year-old, and that's okay. And there are other pieces <laughs> of art that are for your five-year-old, mm-hmm. but there are certain things that don't need to be sort of this. Uh, I don't. I don't understand that arc of the story of how that gets told. So I always tell people I am an artist and I am a Christian. I don't have shame about being a Christian and being an artist, but I don't put those two together because of the bad connotations, unfortunately. Yeah, amen. I, I saw Catherine. Catherine, Thank go. Oh. Can I ask? Oh, sorry, Catherine. I'm sorry. Oh. I mean, it just got me excited. Go, go, go. Go on, Matrina. No, I, I just was, I can't agree more. And I, I wanted to add, if I may, also the, the, the limitations placed on how Christians should behave, mm-hmm. um, like righteous anger. Do we have permission to be angry? Do we have permission mm-hmm. to resist? There's so many restrictions that are placed on Christians, like not just is it rated PG for children, but also restrictions on how we can behave. There's always these rules that you're going to have to act peacefully if you're a Christian when the moment calls for us to dismantle and to disrupt. Girl, yeah. (laughs) Amina's like snapping. She's like, snap, snap, snap. Me too. I'm over here snapping too. Yes. And I think that for me, artistry is supposed to be liberating. And if being in your Mm -hmm. Christian community or your faith practice means abandoning liberation and abandoning honoring the humanity of others, I don't want to be a part of it. Amen. Artistry is supposed to be liberating. Come on, sis. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. And now we have a performance by Amina Brown. We carry water on our heads, babies on our backs, joy in our hips. We till the fertile ground in our garden, in our soul, in our children. We bear fruit. We grow. We watch things grow. We yield fruit in season. We stand in front of fire, on the front lines, in front of desk, behind camera, behind pulpit, in the face of war. We face evil. We face violence. We face obstacles. We stare, struggle in the eyes, and dare struggle to stare back. We take flour, add water, make tortillas, make porridge, make naan. 
make dumplings, make biscuits, make do with hands that knead the dough and build the bricks and raise the babies and teach the children and fight poverty. We carry community in our wombs, on our backs, in our arms, in our chest. We take our words and gather them like so many sticks until they ignite. We build fire and around that fire we sing. We sing because a song always gives birth. We sing because a song always knows where the soul is wounded. We sing because a song always reminds us that we are at home in this body, in this skin. And around that fire, we dance. We dance to the tune of liberation. We dance for the women who have gone before us, for the women who are no longer here, for the women who cannot speak. We dance and fight for justice until every woman is free. Hear the drums in the rhythm we walk. As we speak our mother tongue, as we say prayers in our mother's tongues, we find our language in banana leaves and avocado and mango and yams and rice and seaweed. We tell our stories while braiding the hair of our daughters, while standing in front of a boardroom, while building a business, while frying chicken. We tell our stories while leading the way in protest, while going to school, while performing surgery, because nobody gets to tell our stories for us, because our stories belong to us, because we belong to each other. We raise our hands. We raise our voices. We raise the next generation we create. We pioneer, we invent, we look ahead, we know the way. We see no path, so we use our feet to build one for the ones who will come after us. We leave a legacy in the sound of our laughter. Every day, we build a world. Thank God for women. the last year has inspired you to create something new that you're excited about? Anyone? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you was telling us and then you was going to do, no, do Okay. No, you no, was asking us right now. Okay. okay. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what inspired you or who inspired you in the last year? Lisa, you inspire me. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, I, I was I not even it. fishing. I was not fishing. <laughs> I know, but you you do. You absolutely inspire me. And so what's um, the what like hone in on hone in on what is it about the work that you're inspired by? Because I'm sure, you know, it's not just my, me. It's it's what you see, what's you know, what's being brought to you into your I'm inspired room. by how you are how you're building out Freedom Road and you are you're writing, you're connecting with all kinds of people and and that is partly the art of of what it means to be you you you're just curious and you're passionate and you're living bravely and you're sharing your story with other people and you're helping other people see the story of our country in new ways and it's it's really powerful so thank you Thank you so much, Catherine. <laughs> but you know what I hear? What I hear from what you just said is that what's inspiring you is watching someone 
kind of live in, live into my true self, live into her true yes. self, which probably gives you maybe hopefully some inspiration to do the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Trina, I hear you or see you. So who, who, <laughs> who inspired you? I just spent the past few years working on my dissertation, focusing on the narrative of 19th century women and 21st century women and the subversive ways that they have used lament as a tool to express themselves, to be seen, to be heard, and to um, insist that they matter, not for the affirmation of others, but for self and for each other. And I didn't realize that I had endured so much pain over the past few years and that I had kept that pain bottled in. Mm -hmm. And as I continued to research these women, I found myself crying out, like screaming out loud because they got it. Mm. (laughs) Even, Even as ancestors, they got it. They understood my sorrow from the oppression being a black person, my oppression as a woman, my uh, trying to express myself creatively in academia that doesn't always get it. Mm -hmm. And what I found was empowerment to be myself, to own up to who I am and to be unapologetic about it. And to see the movement of not only 19th century, but biblical women, acts of resistance. And then to be a witness here in this 21st century of say her name and, uh, you know, movement and looking at how women are defining for themselves their movement or what their issues are. I'm humbled by that. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm challenged to live freely in the same way. I I just want to be a free black woman in Mm. this world. And to be empowered by the narrative of these amazing women of the past and of today, I find myself um, removing shackles that was holding me down. And I'm living each day now to strive towards freedom. Mm. Honestly, I feel like we could just like break into song right now because that was exactly, that's it. That's it. Um, Amina did three snaps in a circle while you were, while you were, yeah, she, she's shaking snaps. her head now. So Go on, I girl. I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt you with mm-hmm. too loud of a snap, but just mm-hmm. know I had the snaps deep within. <laughs> and I really, uh, my, my answer to this is very similar to yours, Waltrina. It's, it is the women and the women of color in particular. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I, I was, I was just doing like a little, you know, what have I created in the last you know year? And uh, two out of the three poems that I wrote in the last year were inspired by women mm-hmm. or were about women and were uh, about women of color in particular. Mm-hmm. And I started my podcast this year and it is all about elevating the voices of marginalized women, of women of color. Mm-hmm. So that's really what's inspiring me right now. That's mm-hmm. what's giving me a lot of hope mm-hmm. is the work that women mm-hmm. of color are doing in so many ways all over the world. That's what's giving me hope right now. Mm. Awesome. Ashe. Ashe. You guys, what's your favorite piece that you've ever done? 
like, you know, favorite piece of art you've ever created, the one that kind of, you it's like a touchstone for you, or it just says that, it says hashtag it. Well, I'm biased because I, I love Langston Hughes. Obviously, that was my very first piece. But when I was living in Chicago, I'm amidst the height of, of a lot of the violence that um, people speak of. I started experimenting with um, Nina Simone's version of Strange Fruit and yes. um, call out the names of those that have um, transitioned um, and justly and, um, and who became ancestors too soon. And obviously, lamentation is a huge part of my artistry, but it was healing for me. It also helped me to feel as if I was doing something. Um, there was a church that was right next to my apartment that every time a, a young person died, they put their name on this banner. And after a while, that banner was longer than the church building. And wow. I felt helpless walking past that church each day. And I found myself singing that song, even though it's a very haunting song, there's some truth telling in it. Um, and there's also some healing bomb in it. Yeah. And so I started to use it to help me to be able to tell the story of this 21st century lynching. And it also helped me to feel as if I was doing something to raise awareness around what was happening. Well, and honestly, I will never, ever forget your performance of that at the summit and uh, in conjunction with Reverend Sekou and his art. Um, my God, like literally lament to wail, to filling the space, to transformation. It was, it was, it's literally, it's transcendent. Can I give one little shout out? Can I give one little shout out to Michelle Obama's autobiography? I'm listening to it on Audible and it's like getting to spend 20 hours with this amazing woman. Oh, wow. And yeah. She is so incredible. And I just, oh, it's everyone, everyone needs to read this book, listen to this book. And I just can't so wait to see. She's inspiring you. Yes, absolutely. It sounds she like you also amazing. are being inspired by women of color. Absolutely. How about absolutely. that? Maybe that's just kind of, the, I mean, really, maybe the Lord is just doing something right now in the country through women of color. Mm. And there's really a message, kind of a Kairos moment, uh, mm. a message that's coming to the nation through women of color. I really do believe, I believe that. And it's striking to me that that both of the women you named are women of color, black women in particular. I yeah, just, I believe that women of color are have been always, but are building. I think women of color are building so many things in so many ways and are not waiting for yeah. permission. That's not it. Waiting for some entity to come and resource you or whatever that is. I think women <laughs> of color are are doing what we have always done. We are making our own paths. And right. I think we are going to see uh, such a beautiful future because of it. You know, I think one my favorite piece to perform right now is a poem called For the Women. Mm. And I tried to imagine what are all the things women are doing all around the world from carrying water on their heads 
to leading protests mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and the ways that we multitask as mm-hmm. women, that we are raising children, some hours, some not hours, mm-hmm. that we are doing all of these things in academia, that we are cooking food for ourselves, that we are starting businesses. You know, we are just building in so many ways. And every time I do that poem, I almost yell my lungs out because I (laughs) I just, I want women to be celebrated and women of color in particular to be celebrated. Now it's a time to uplift the voices of women, uplift the work and leadership of women. Absolutely. Wow. Amen. Well, I hope are you going to share that one with us? Yes, I do have a recording of that. Yay! Okay, good, good, good. So we'll get to hear that during one of the breaks as well. Catherine, what is the favorite piece you've ever done? Right now, I'm working in a series Mm. um, that I I started after the 2016 election. Oh, interesting. Um, This is when I was tearing fabric um, and Mm. lamenting Mm. and... I and now, let making... me just say real quick, Catherine is a white woman from Texas, okay? <laughs> Catherine is a white woman yeah, from Texas. She was I lamenting am. after. Yeah, so keep I going. <laughs> so, yes, mm-hmm. I, I am deeply, and I'm, and I'm prayerfully wanting to be an ally and, mm-hmm. and reflect what has happened. Yeah, exactly. Lisa, I love your, I love your spoken word, this happened. Mm. And I think about that when I'm quilting, because mm. part of what I'm doing as I'm quilting is I'm finding fabrics that have been manufactured that often some will have either racially insensitive undertones or just they're completely blind. Mm. I'm finding these fabrics and I'm, I'm able to put them together to actually show narrative gaps. So you can see I, I, there's a fabric in your quilt, Lisa, that has... It's this cute little charming calico, but it's of people of color working, toiling, hmm. carrying heavy things. It's 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 so bizarre. So yes. anyway, I saw that exactly. But it's important that someone made this fabric for some purpose, and it's outside of the shalom of the center. So go back and explain the shalom quilts. Like you know, if you were to describe it. How would you, because we will actually have a picture of it on the, on the website. Oh, okay. So just okay. describe, describe it from the center out. So in the center is the garden. It's, it's brilliant, beautiful fabric that I think was made in India and it's, it's in a nine patch. So it's a cruciform design, just that, you know, nine blocks sewn together. Mm-hmm. And as you expand, you, you leave the garden and one of the fabrics is, fish swimming but they they're cut off from the garden and there there's no water in this in this fish pattern and then there's also a really thorny pattern separating the the people from the garden so the idea yeah. is we at the center there's something really beautiful but we're cut off and things are falling apart on the edges there's bees that can't get to the flowers in the center so it's it's meant to be hopeful, but also to reflect the reality of we we're not there. We are not in the garden, but there's there's hope to get back. The quilt series that I can't stop making. I didn't really mean it to be a big series, but it's it's flags that it's the geometry of the American flag mm. 
but different colors and patterns and textures. So the series is beyond red, white, and blue as a way of saying America has to be, we can't just be red or blue or it's not about a red blue wave or a blue wave. It's about all of us belonging and fitting together in this geometry of, mm. of our country, which I think the most visible symbol probably is the flag. But during that 2016 election, the, the flag, almost, it just was so toxic to see people waving it and saying hateful, hateful things. Mm. It made me very sad. So I didn't want to destroy it as much as I wanted to reclaim it and let it look like America. So... Thank you for that. I, I, we will actually, we will have a picture of that quilt. And actually, even maybe if you want to share some of the um, pictures of, of the series, that would be really awesome if we could see them. Because I've seen some of them and they are profound. For me, the piece that actually made me cry when watching, when when finally realizing the meaning of the quilt was the the fabric of the workers and realizing that on the quilt, they're being pushed away from Shalom. Wow. It's true. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. And now we have a performance by Waltrina Middleton. Strange Fruit. Southern Tree. Bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and blood has his Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. Pastoral sea of the gallant dove. The bulging eyes. And the twisted mouth sent a magnolia so sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of human flesh. Are the fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, and for the trees. To drop, here is a strange and bitter cry. 
Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media, who is raising his hands, saying victory right now. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding common commitment and lead to common action. And you can find out more about us and our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates and we promise we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. And until then, join the conversation on Freedom Road.